Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. This is a special one-hour episode featuring Christian Gonzalez and Ian Story. Christian is a research assistant at Heterodox Academy. He's a senior at Columbia University, and he has written for various conservative publications like National Review and City Journal. Ian is a staff writer for Heterodox Academy, he's a political scientist, and a candidate for Masters of Divinity at Union Theological Seminary. Christian classifies himself as conservative, Ian classifies himself as liberal. In this episode, we'll explore whether it's possible to define conservatism and liberalism. I thought we'd start by talking about definitions of conservatism and liberalism that don't work very well. We talked a bit beforehand about this. Uh, So first, conservatism can be defined, or conservatives can be defined as people who like hierarchy or order as such. So Christian, do you want to take a stab explaining why you feel like that's inadequate? Yes. So not all people who would uh, describe themselves as being on the right are motivated by a desire to preserve order. Some people on the right are perfectly willing to cause disorder if it means that they'll achieve some other value. In particular, for example, libertarians who propose that we abolish the welfare state are willing to deal with the disorder that would cause, but they care more about things like individual freedom and unleashing the power of the market than they do about order. So I wouldn't say valuing order as such places you on the right, but there are strains of conservatism that do place a high value, that do really value order more so than do most people on the left, I would say. So the Burkean tradition does care a lot about order, um, but it's not quite the best way to describe the right in general. Um, I I line up quite closely to Christian on this. I think it always gets slippery when you start talking about the fundamental values of conservatism, because like liberalism, it, it is a big tent. I think it's sometimes a lot more useful to track the way that what's being called conservative is working as a rhetorical device. Like what, what political work is it doing? So in this case, we want to say if we're trying to deal with this question of, okay, are conservatives more interested in order and hierarchy? Well, look at what is almost inarguably the most successful deployment of the rhetoric of conservative versus liberal in the last century, which is, Reagan's building on gold waters, but Reagan's reconception of the conservative as principally committed to small government versus the liberal who is the tax and spend big government, big brother style of politician. Um, if that were the case and in some certain way, because Reagan's saying it in a very important way for two plus decades made it so, then we have an understanding of conservative that takes as its ideological core a a contrast with liberals who are more hierarchical, who are more invested in ordering the lives of individuals. Um, So I, I, I always think that when we have a category that we can see demonstrably reversing what it means over what in political terms is a very short period of time, um, you know, you're dealing with something slippery. So would it be fair to say that conservatives fear 
that society will descend into disorder or chaos if liberal policies are implemented? Uh, yes, I think that's often the case. Um, if you go back to uh, to Burke and you read what his fears about the Re- French Revolution were, one big one was that he believed that the French revolutionaries had already caused disorder in France. Uh, and he was very worried about that. But also he believed that um, if their philosophy was taken up by people across the European continent and in the UK, then more disorder and more upheaval uh, w- would arise. And you see this repeated um, over time with other conservatives fearing the result of, of the welfare state, for example, or, or, or the New Deal, etc. Yeah, if I could just pick up on that, actually, I think Christian is highlighting another one of those moments where you have to, you, you can't but see that something really strange is going on with this category, which is that I think if you look at the rhetoric of many of the the major contemporary conservative figures, not least of all Donald Trump, you get this strange bifurcation kind of fever dream where liberals will simultaneously both create complete anarchy and chaos and a hyper-authoritarian state, right? Which are, in theory, antithetical things. Apparently, the left, and to be clear, we're going to talk about the fever dreams of the left on another, you know, a little bit later, but apparently within this categorization, um, liberals result in precisely the opposite things simultaneously. Um, And I think that's part of the power of a category as a rhetorical device, right? Because it allows you to attach your opponent to pretty much anything that you know that your demographic deems bad. Yeah, uh, if I could add something to that. Um, If you look at uh, at a lot of leftist critiques of what they call neoliberalism, it's not my favorite term, but, uh, but of neoliberal policies, that is like, cutting down on social services, privatizing industries, etc. Um, a lot of times their critique is that that itself would cause disorder because it would, um, for example, dismantle state capacity. And in making the government useless or helpless, it throws people into poverty and it causes disorder. So that's another example of, of the category not being quite right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the ironic flip side of that is that at the same time that neoliberalism, which is in theory, uh, a theory about the, you know, sort of decoupling of state power and the market at the same time that neoliberalism is being described as causing chaos and disruption. It is also as a system being described as something which is absolutely dominant and coming out of internationally, a sphere of national international governance in a way that is dominating peoples, right? So again, you have this double-sided discourse. Neoliberalism is both causing chaos and anarchy and causing a kind of weird market hyper-authoritarianism. So one definition of liberalism that I think both of you also find flawed is the definition that liberals are people who like state intervention as such. Yeah, and this does go back a little bit to that weird split between how the rest of the Anglophone world uses the term liberal, which is to mean people who support the free market, and how Americans use the term liberal. So we're in this weird linguistic clash of Reaganism versus Anglophilia. Um, 
But, you know, I think just historically, if you look at the movements that we most identify now with liberalism, I'm just going to expand that term a little bit to to refer to the left instead. That's a whole another can of worms, but um, it's hard to actually talk about who liberals are in this country before arguably Nixon, certainly Goldwater. Um, but that gives us a really small time slice to deal with. So if you look at the history of the movements that turned into what we now call liberals, they've always been really thoroughly split between uh, one, one side that strongly prefers local and sometimes even hyper-local organization. Um, if you think about the early uh, labor movements in this country, you have organizations like the IWW, which is has strong anarchist elements. It's a, it, it's sort of dominated by the anarcho syndicalists. If I'm, I think that's the right organization anyway. Um, and on the other hand, you then get FDR style, um, or, or new deal style liberalism, which is a significant intervention into the state economy. So I think a lot of what ends up being called liberal and why now we say liberals like state intervention is the product of specific administrations. Certainly the version of liberalism that Reagan is talking about to an extent, Goldwater is using FDR as paradigmatic of what a liberal is. Um, and the difficulty is that, that historically, let alone leading up to FDR, but also after that's just not always, just not always the case, right? Certainly the fight over the last 50, 60 years um, has been the degree of federal regulation in both economic and social spheres. But even within that, the lines aren't clean about who wants the state into what arena. Um, certainly much of the left discourse right now that you can see in major left publications, in major left movements like the Sunrise Movement, like Black Lives Matter. Well, actually, that's a contrast, right? The Sunrise Movement is advocating for an enormous amount of government investment in the problem of climate change. The Black Lives Matter movement's central issue is the excessive use of state power against specific groups of people in this country. So whether within the present, whether within the past, what we're looking at is the use of specific figures to define what those terms mean not actually what what the movements themselves entail. Uh, yeah, could I add to that? So I think the definition you proposed about leftists being pro-big government also misses a very long tradition of left anti-statism, which I'm not quite sure where I'd, uh, I'd say it begins, but certainly Marx is in some ways, or in some ways represents it, with the basic view being, uh, being that the state it's a representation of dominant social groups. So in Marx's case, the dominant social group that controls the state is the bourgeoisie, uh, the, the capitalist class. 
But later on, you see the state being represented by, for instance, anti-racist thinkers as the way by which whites maintain their dominance, or by feminist thinkers as a way by which men do the same. And so there's a lot of skepticism in certain modes of left theorizing about state power. Um, and I would add, speaking of contemporary movements, that maybe this is a bit of a tension, because you sometimes see people on the one hand make very, uh, by people I mean people on the left, um, on the one hand make very strong criticisms of the way the American state operates, especially in, for, for example, administering racist policies, but on the other hand, also calling for the expansion of state power into investment in uh, climate change and healthcare and other such areas. And yeah, Ian, I wonder if you think that's a bit of a tension, but uh, in any case, even if it can be resolved, I think it does show that the left doesn't only think in, in one way about the question of state power or of the state. Christian is being a little kind um, to introduce this question because he knows that I'm I'm fairly thoroughly in this particular camp that he's describing. Um, but you know, I I think you're right to say that's attention, but it's only attention if what we think we're talking about is relationships to the state as such. And I almost wonder if in contemporary politics, maybe not in 18th maybe not in 19th century politics, but in contemporary politics, the what is your relationship to the state is a bit of a shibboleth, um, particularly in this country, which, whether in left or right politics, has always tended towards a more pragmatic view of electoral contestation, right? If you're, if you're an anti-racist activist, on the one hand, it's perfectly logical, indeed, deeply necessary, that you would believe in state intervention into insurance and real estate policies to combat redlining, to combat the deliberate actuarialism that ends up with higher prices for black people. Um, on the other hand, it is equally pragmatically logical for you to oppose the excessive use of police violence. So, you know, I think on some level, one of the things that distinguishes talking about conservative and liberal in the American context is that relative to Europe, relative to, in some ways, relative to East Asia, certainly less so Southeast Asia, but a number of other regions in the world, America is not consistently ideological in the same way. And the only thing that I would say is that I'm not certain that's a bad thing. Right. I'm not sure that having tensions in your relationship to the expression of state power is a terrible thing. So conservatives and liberals do seem to have a different uh, a different set of beliefs about deservingness and who deserves uh, certain rewards and by virtue of what. So conservatives often feel like some people deserve more rewards by virtue of their position in the hierarchy or in proportion to the effort or in proportion to the innovation that they've introduced. Um, liberals often feel like people deserve rewards if they are part of a community and things should be divided equitably. So that's one perspective. So Christian, to start off with you, how do you feel about uh, the issue of just desserts and conservatives feeling like um, the problem with liberals is they want an unjust system of rewards? Well, in my in my reading of, of the conservative tradition, I don't think conservatives themselves frame the question of just desert 
as a question of just desert. So in, in the in the Burkean tradition, as far as I know, there isn't an explicit discussion of when uh, the inequalities that arise in life are are justly deserved. Um, in the in the more free marketeering tradition, especially in the 20th century. So if you look at thinkers like Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Thomas Sowell, uh, they do not say that the inequalities of the market, for example, uh, business people um, getting larger rewards are in some sense of justice deserved. Um, they think that it is a consequence of freedom, that freedom will yield inequality. They will say that, but they don't assign a sort of uh, sense of justice to, to to the inequalities that arise, at least not explicitly. So the the question of just desert framed as such is can maybe be a bit difficult in um, uh, for 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 the right. So Ian, what do you think about this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think I end up coming down, at least on my reading of the right, very similarly to Christian, although I might frame it slightly differently just because of my own um, perspective from the outset. I think that it is certainly true that conservative thinkers like Hayek, like Friedman, I would actually say Burke is, is quite different on this scale, but, but certainly in the sort of 20th century Hayek Friedman school of largely free market understanding of what is or is not a just society, there's a division being made, right? Which is when Hayek or Friedman say, well, we're not, we're not interested in deservingness to just deservingness. What they're saying is that they're not interested in outcome-based justice, right? But what they're proposing is actually a theory of outcome-based justice. It's just that whatever the outcome is, is by definition just provided that the market process is just. Um, so my perspective tends to be that both conservative and liberals are operating under ideas of just deservingness, you see it in the conservative and the liberal rhetoric, contemporary rhetoric. It's just they located in very different places. Liberals, at least in the 20th to 21st century traditions, tend to locate deservingness as a property of humans as such, as opposed to a property of process. Right. So a person is deserving of paradigmatically dignity simply by virtue of the fact that they're human. Right. So if there is a division here, I would, I would suspect the tendencies are on that, but I would make at least one enormous caveat, um, which is that there is a very strong tradition in this country of Catholic conservatism, which has to some extent bled into contemporary evangelical conservatism, which very strongly centers a notion of the dignity of the human and the dignity of the human soul. I think as 
many differences as I have with him ideologically, Ross Douthat is an extraordinary proponent of what a concept of human dignity, even if he doesn't use that exact term, means for contemporary conservatism. So, you know, I'm back to this circle, right? I can I can sort of accept a definition to begin with, but I'm also deeply uncomfortable with it because some of the conservatives right now which despite the differences I have with them, I most admire are ones who very much have a concept of human dignity. And we could flip that around and talk about the American left legal community and their really sharp and some sense defining commitment to process justice. So, so, so if you look at people, I mean, to pick on, maybe it's an unfair target, but if you think of Ayn Rand, or Ayn Rand, um, not a serious conservative thinker, but a lot of conservatives in America um, are fans of her. And a recurring theme in her fiction is some entrepreneur is very successful, and then their just rewards are taken away from them by the government through taxation. Um, and even in popular discourse, taxation uh, at least in America, conservatives complain that taxation is unfair because it takes your fairly earned wages and a proportion of that is stolen from you, so to speak. Um, and even uh, going back to Burke, there's implicit in Burke is the idea that the kings and monarchs are vested with some degree of magical divine authority that maybe we shouldn't question, but they deserve that power. And so it is... It is not for us to to disturb that order because it is it, it is just according to um, a divine plan. So in that sense, uh, conservatives do seem to believe that there's this proportionality rather than equality is the key to um, to justice. So Christian, do you feel like Hayek may be an exception there? Um. No. So let's see. So I agree that in popular discourse and in some forms of, of right-wing theorizing, there is, uh, uh, there is in some forms, there is a theory of just desert, which is, you know, if you work hard, if you start a business and you get rich off it, that's perfectly just. Um, and you, yeah, you see this in Ayn Rand, you see it in, in popular discourse. Uh, I don't mean to deny that. Um, but I think, um, and this might be a bit maybe um, charitable, maybe too charitable, but I think the subtler uh, thinkers on the right don't have a theory like that. And the, the reason they reject it, so again, like Hayek, like Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell, um, they, even, they even lament in their writing, they lament how great inequalities are. Um, but... I think the subtler ones do not make a, uh, a just desert claim because they know that it's a bit too crude to say that, you know, a billionaire is billion or like however many multiples of times more deserving of what he has than, than an average person. Um, as regard Berg, though, um, I think here again, he's, he's a bit more subtle than just defending the divine right of kings. I don't think that's what he's doing. In fact, he has a passage in the reflections on, on the revolution in France where he um, calls, I think, Robert Filmer or other theorists of, of divine right. He says that they're crude dogmatists, that it's not the case, that you could simply assign 
ultimate uh, sovereignty to a king by virtue of his being divinely appointed. Um, so he rejects that. I think the reason he defended, in particular, the French monarchy and the reason he was against um, English radicals saying that the only just basis for a government is, a, is democracy is because he felt that if you made that theoretical move, you were rendering the English government that existed illegitimate and thus worthy of overthrowing. Um, and he feared the the disorder, the violence, the upheaval that the English public taking up that idea would cause. So uh, again, I don't read him as just saying, well, the king deserves his place because he was divinely appointed. Okay. And Ian, one response I have to you is there's the tradition of individual dignity, but there's also a sense, maybe again, this is more American liberalism, but that every sub-community in America is part of the larger community, and this deserves an equal part of the pie. So African-Americans are a sub-community, white Americans are a sub-community, and so forth. And each of those belongs to one larger community. So it is unfair if one of them gets a smaller piece of the pie. So do you feel like the sense of community being different is also characteristic here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a good that's a good way to to make my previous suggestion twist a little bit. And I think in part, that's part of why for me, um, you can't really reduce the immediate traditions of liberalism or conservatism down to either theories of individuals or theories of communities. What you have is different kinds of traditions about the relationships between the two. Right. So any, any attempt, any attempt you're going to make to make that split between liberals and conservatives on either one of those issues is going to end up looking very messy on the other one. So let me spit out what I mean a little bit. Right. So you're quite right to say that there's a huge part of the liberal tradition in the United States, which is very invested in the value and the importance and yes, the dignity of certain communities, especially in the American tradition of anti-racism and racial justice. So, you know, I think a, a sort of funny example of this is, you know, when I was first starting in political theory, we were still taught as little undergraduates that the defining debate of political theory was between liberalism and communitarianism, right? And in many senses for a time it was, but it's worth remembering that both of those theories were coming out of people who would have self-described as on the left, right? John Rawls, the paradigmatic liberal of that time period, was a staunch advocate of the civil rights movement, understood himself as very liberal, no less than someone like um, an Iris Marion Young, um, it's a little complicated to call her a communitarian, but anyone in that tradition, right? So the debate between liberalism and communitarianism, which is to say on a certain level, a debate between where are we going to put the primary value of democratic polity was already the centerpiece of left's de leftism's debate to its, with itself. So another issue that comes up is how meaningful tradition is conservatives 
it's in the name, want to conserve tradition in general. Uh, liberals do not seem to be as interested in conserving tradition. So do you think that's a line that we can use to demarcate the difference? Uh, no. So <laughs> um, I th- for one thing, uh, <laughs> what we call tradition is is uh, it's always up for debate. So this is one of the problems American conservatives especially have. What, what do you call tradition in this country? If you call the founding, for example, tradition, is there maybe uh, a sort of uh, radical tradition that exists in America, one committed to liberty and equality? And if so, then that, puts, that would put conservatism in a complicated relationship to the notion of tradition. But more broadly, um, I think a lot of people on the right don't really care about tradition. Uh, again, going back to the, to the free market thinkers in the 20th century, um, Hayek and Friedman might occasionally uh, refer to tradition, but not really. They care about setting up a, a free order, a free social order, um, which minimizes the oppressive power of the state. That doesn't really have anything to do with tradition. I think when a lot of conservatives speak about tradition, they, they particularly care, for example, about religion and Christianity, and that is an element of it. So the tradition question gets at this, uh, but it doesn't fully capture the phenomenon of conservatism. I feel like you're channeling Thomas Paine and his response to Burke. So now I'm not sure if you're pro-Burke or anti-Burke. <laughs> a little bit, which is also a little bit alarming because Thomas Paine arguably was came out of the proto-American socialist tradition. So we've got all si- kinds of dissonance going on. Well, that, I ought to clarify, if, okay. if I'm channeling pain, it's totally unintentional. <laughs> You're an unintentional socialist, my friend. Admit it to yourself. So, Ian, what do you think about the purpose or role of tradition? Yeah, so, you know, I think this is one where I'm a little I'm – I'm more sympathetic to this attempt at definition than Christian is. I, I agree that it's, you know, it's not going to be perfect. It's, it's, there are, it's a partial piece of it, but I do think that there is something to conservatism as a kind of relationship to what role tradition has in politics, right? So, I think Christian is right. You know, once you bring tradition into it, what you essentially have is you've got a war of what counts as traditional, what doesn't count as traditional, what is, you know, one person's tradition is another person's radicalism. There is a radical tradition, right? But I do think that for a lot of right thinkers, and here I think actually the sort of the Hayek Friedman school of conservatism is an outlier. It is. It's an extremely important outlier with huge impacts on Reaganism and neoconservatism. But in terms of conservative thinkers, but even more in terms of American conservative politics, um, I mean, it's, there is a sense in which what role tradition has to play in 
the political sphere is an issue for conservative thinkers who are thinking about national politics in a way that historically it has not been as much in liberalism. Now, this is a place where I would make a very important distinction, which is if I say that's true, it's true of national style liberalism, but it is worth remembering that there are a lot of the most important largely liberationist left movements, whether that's black liberationism, especially indigenous liberation movements, which are very much centered on the ways in which contemporary American governance has decimated the ability of a given people to preserve their cultural and their communal traditions. So it's a moment where I think it, it works a little better on conservatism versus liberalism than it does on left versus right, if that makes sense. So Christian, what do you think conservatives want to conserve? <laughs> That's a difficult uh, question. Um, it, there's no easy answer to it because there are a million things. I mean, conservatives have written a million, especially in America, a million books and essays wondering what it is they or we uh, are trying to conserve. But I, I really think it varies. Um, I think in the, and also going back to the, or staying with the question of tradition, I think Burkean conservatives do have a more positive disposition toward things that we've been doing for a long time. That doesn't mean, though, that just because you've been doing something for a long time, it's right, and any challenge to it is automatically wrong. But it does mean that before you change something, you should uh, reflect. And the, the, the sort of impulse is not to quickly tear things down. Um, whereas I would, think, I, I would say, Ian, um, on the left, there's... Uh, something having been done for a long time doesn't really have any normative import uh, for much of the left. Not all of it, but for much of it. Um, it's not really something you defer to if you're on the left. Um, anyway, Chris, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm evading your question about what it is conservatives want to conserve. But the answer, I think, is that it's not clear. Um, so, for example, if you're, a, there are a lot of American conservatives who try to be both libertarians and Burkeans. And I think in most cases it doesn't work because if you are a libertarian, then you have a principled objection to much of the American state as it currently exists. Uh, you have a principled objection to the New Deal, to the Great Society programs, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on uh, to much of the regulation. But if you're a Burkean, then you're skeptical of trying to destroy things again because of the disorder it might cause, even if the things that are that exist are not optimal. And so, American conservatives are stuck in this trap where, well, they'll say we want to conserve something about America, but at the same time they want to tear down a, a great deal of of the way the American state is set up. Um, and it, it, I think it's just an internal tension that's not easily resolvable. And it, it's what's behind the inability of conservatives to articulate what it is they want to conserve in this country. I do agree that um, 
Hayek is different. I mean, Hayek famously wrote an essay called Why I'm Not a Conservative, because he wanted to differentiate libertarianism from conservatism. Um, so there's that, there's that distinction there. One other thing we discussed ahead of time is consequences. So conservatives seem to believe that the long-term desirable consequence of conservative policies in a conservative government is the preservation of useful traditions. And we may not see what the purpose of those traditions is right now, but we will um, see what their purpose was if they're lost. Uh, whereas liberals seem to believe that the long-term consequence of liberal policies and liberal government will be the emancipation of all individuals and all communities, such that everyone has the right degree of liberty and uh, is an emancipated state. Uh, so let's start with Ian. Do you feel like that distinction is uh, accurate? Um, yeah. So, you know, as I said, I have a little more sympathy for the reading of conservatism as preserving some form of tradition than Chris does. So I'll, I'll let him address that a little bit more cleanly. I, you know, I do think that there, that the description that you just gave of liberal, like the relationship between liberalism and I would say between liberalism and liberation, right? There's a reason they're both derivative of the same Latin root is one that's, particularly since the rise of the new left, particularly since I would say the politics of the eighties, um, the concept of liberation, whatever the object of that happens to be has become a core value of liberals. And there's an immense amount of internal contestation about what that means. And here I, I want to give Christian a little bit more slack to work with than the initial <laughs> question might have provided, because I do wonder if um, there's a, there's a difference when we're talking about these things between an orientation and a specific set of goals. So what I would say is that it is probably fairly accurate to say that in the very diffuse grand coalition, which constitutes something like what we call American liberalism, which is constantly fighting with itself and, and <laughs> has never stopped doing so. Um, the underlying orientation is towards something like liberation. There are different theories of what that constitutes. Um, I will admit in this set of questions, I've been very influenced by um, the various readings of these freedom traditions that comes out of Professor Neil Roberts' Freedom as Marinage. Um, it's a fantastic book, highly recommended. But wherever you, you draw the sort of political theory of the different theories of liberation in liberal movements in the 20th and 21st century, it does feel like that is a kind of irreducible core of liberalism. They're going to fight about what liberation means. They're going to fight about what the outcome of liberation looks like. But the essential orientation sounds right to me. I will let Christian play with the idea of whether or not there is an essential political orientation towards conservation in conservatism. Hmm. 
So to answer your question, uh, the way I would frame it is, and uh, this, the, what, what, what's about to follow is probably a lot more normative than, than what I've said before. But in my view, in left, like far left thinking, um, there isn't really a concern with values being traded off against each other. It seems to be the case that in, again, this doesn't apply to the center left as much, but on the far left and far left thinking, there doesn't seem to be uh, any sustained reflection on how the value of emancipation is to be traded off against other values. And so there, there seems to be uh, an assumption that once, uh, once liberation is achieved, or that liberation can be achieved without there being costs in terms of other values that one might care about. Whereas on the right, I think there's a far greater concern with how, uh, with value pluralism and with how uh, achieving one thing might come at the cost of another. That doesn't mean it's, you, it's impossible to achieve um, a set of circumstances which is better than the one which preceded it. But it does mean that you can never simply have a clean solution to a problem. You're only going to be able to trade off, to have a trade off and make some things better at the same time as you're making other things worse. And it might be a net good, but it's not. Uh, you, it, the right, I don't think, claims that it embodies every value at the same time. I think it has a better grasp of value trade offs. In, in long-term consequences. Do you feel like religious conservatives, though, just as a subset <laughs> of conservatism, religious conservatives mm -hmm. do feel like there are some long-term good consequences to preserving many communal traditions and religious traditions, even if we don't, even if we can't clearly state what their purpose is? Yeah. Would you mind if I come in on this, Chris? because this actually relates directly to how I was going to respond to Christian, which is that I find this to be a deeply slippery <laughs> answer <laughs> because it allows conservatives to be able to say, well, we're not for anything specific over everything else. We're just for there being lots of things, right? First of all, which is itself a value, right? Pluralism is a value. Second of all, that description really doesn't track well with the history of conservative politics since at least post-World War II. Um, so to take one example of the dominant force in conservative politics since the early 90s, which is exactly what Chris just raised, which is the Christian right, particularly evangelical conservatism, which, lest we forget, arose out of a specific set of also very hierarchical and traditional um, places in Southern politics. That's the kind way of putting it. <laughs> um, so, you know, whether it is a kind of Ron Paulian libertarian who has an extremely high valuation of one particular concept of liberty right, as overriding all other values, or it's a kind of Falwellian style evangelical Christian on the right who has very strong views about at least one understanding of human life and certainly would in a millisecond tell you that they have precisely a very distinct concept of the highest possible value, which is 
the divine, which is God, which is in their context, Jesus Christ. Um, so it may be that conservatives don't agree on what that highest possible value is, but I don't think a description of the modern conservative movements going back to Buckley as not having a highest value and in fact embracing value pluralism in an era in which conservatism has consistently taken the anti-pluralist stances on a variety of particularly social issues, but also economic issues, doesn't really hold a ton of water. Hmm. Um, well, so let me maybe distinguish to help out a bit. I think if you introduce, uh, and it's unfortunate, or, or maybe it's not unfortunate, but if you introduce the expression of uh, conservatism in politics, uh, it makes things a lot more messy than if you look at conservatism or the same applies to the left uh, in theory. So uh, my comment was mainly speaking about the theory and less about the practice um, because I think they are two different sets of, uh, uh, of questions. Um, I totally agree that a lot of libertarian conservatism in America does have a highest value, and it's very clear what that highest value is. But as for um, as for Burkean traditions and even the some of the Catholic conservatives, it doesn't seem to me that they have only one value, which is as clear cut as the value of emancipation is for for left theorizing. Um, so that's what I would respond. Yeah, I do hear that. I do hear that. Um, I think my resistance to that kind of move is to say that, you know, you can talk about how something is in theory being different than how it plays out in practice, but how it plays out in practice is never an accident, right? It's a product of the internalization and the interaction between a set of conservative theories, if we want to call them that, ideologies, beliefs, whatever you want to call them, um, power dynamics in the world, but it's, it's never going to be an accident, right? It cannot be an accident that with the exception, arguably of gun rights, right? We could talk about second amendment debates, maybe. Um, but every major other and maybe taxation questions, but the defining issues of, I would say post Reagan conservative movements, the things that have statistically nineties aughts, um, tens have most consistently driven conservatives to the polls have been in some basic sense, anti-pluralist movements. Um, and I don't think that, uh, so the funny thing is that sounds like an indictment, but I think it actually entirely fits with the reality of conservatism, whether or not there are sort of the, the Burkean versions of it that want to disavow having uh, a highest possible value, which is that I do think that even where that theory exists at the highest order level, the forces that drive modern conservatism fit the name, right? The forces that drove both Bush 
George W. Bush's election and Donald Trump's election in very different ways in some places and similar ways in others were very much about a kind of conservation of a certain kind of image of Americanness, right? I don't say that as an indictment. It, it doesn't fit with my particular views, but, but I don't think in and of itself, it's a, it's a thoroughly defensible value, if not defensible <laughs> in my view, in, in the way that some of those figures did, but, but it is, it is unquestionably an overriding value for so many conservative voters to the point that, you know, they're, I find it quite silly that a lot of writers on the left for quite some time now, since the, the, the sort of infamous book, what's the matter with Kansas have, and actually all the way back into the 19th century, there have been people on the left sort of bang this drum of why are there all these people who are voting against their interests to vote for the conservatives? Um, and I've always found that tradition quite silly because they're not voting against their interests. They have a very strong sense of what their interests are and their interests are in a certain kind of sense of self and a certain kind of conservation of a livingness that they know and understand that fits with a conservative politics better than it fits with a liberal politics in their minds. So in a way, I, th I think I'm being charitable to modern conservatism to say that, no, maybe there there is uh, a consistent political core here, even if sometimes the conservative theorists at the top aren't, aren't great fits for it. I could say a quick thing, yeah. Chris, uh, unless you want to move on no, to another thing. Ahead. So on the question of the theory versus practice thing, I totally agree it's not an accident what 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 practice comes out of theory um but i i do think that it's important at least to when you're mapping what people are saying it's important to take people at their word when they're theorizing even if the practice that comes out of it is even antithetical to to the theory so for instance um i would say that the that uh, a lot of the Marxist movements in the 20th century were theoretically committed to liberation, even if, um, even if when they came to power, they set up very oppressive state structures. The theory that legitimated their doing so claimed to do so in the name of liberation from, uh, from capitalism, from imperialism, etc. Um, so anyway, that's just to say that the theory. Uh, cannot shouldn't be collapsed fully into one super category which includes the theory and the practice I, I think there's some value to keeping them separate um and as for as for conservatism i wonder so are you would say that the highest value for the sort of voters you that the was the matter with kansas book describes is preserving a sense of americanness that's their highest value i I mean, I, I think my suggestion was that the tradition on the left in which that book occurs is sort of failing to understand the importance and the resonance of maybe Americanness to the extent that it's a nationalist understanding, but a lot of times it's a deeply specific local communal understanding of what the way of life they're defending and preserving is, you know, and that can take 
very positive tones. It can create very dark tones, right? The segregationist South understood themselves as conserving a very specific way of life, which was profoundly racist, but it can also take very positive connotations. I'm not for a moment implying that this is something that is uh, sort of innately malevolent. I just think it's a set of valuations that you can't take out of how the modern conservative movement has evolved, whatever it tries to designate as its progenitors, like Burke, like Hayek. So Christian, what would you argue is the long-term desirable consequence of conservative policies? It depends on the conservative you're asking. Are you asking what I think it is? Yeah, I'm asking what you think. Um, Well, for me, I think um, it also depends what you mean by conservative policies. But uh, as I think about it, for me, order is a very important value in my thinking because I think uh, order is the precondition for a lot of the other values we care about. And so, I, uh, for example, freedom or prosperity. Um, and so if you know, if I was the sort of philosopher king, <laughs> I'm not saying I should be, but if I was, uh, my policies would be uh, geared toward uh, incremental and slow improvements that allow us to maintain order even as we improve the state of society. That, that yeah, that's my normative goal, I suppose. Oh, so, so for you, you feel like there would be chaos or disorder if we lost conservative values? In some cases, yeah. Um, okay. So, I think I think, for instance, uh, the uh, the left movement of our time, namely the social justice movement, has a lot of policies that I find disagreeable because, among other reasons, because of the threat they pose to social order. So, for instance, um, having an instinctively antagonistic stance toward the police is, is, is an anti order Mm -hmm. uh, commitment in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's not to say there are no good reasons to have an antagonistic or or that I think it's indefensible to have such a view, but I don't myself agree with it. And I think it's not conducive to order. Uh, Ronnie Janoff Bowman's conception is that at the communal level, what liberals primarily care about is social justice and what, Conservatives primarily care about is social order, and libertarians don't really think about things at the communal level. They're focused at the individual level, which makes them a different category of people. (laughs) So do you think that, uh, maybe Christian, you can go first. Do you think that's a useful way of dividing this if you're trying to look for something succinct? Uh, I think that's pretty good. I, I might pick some bones, but I think that's pretty good. Ian, what do you think? Well, in our sort of crossfire style model here, <laughs> I feel obligated to say, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is actually what I want to say, which is that I, I, you know, I think that was a really interesting articulation and I don't want to disrespect it, but I would want to problematize one specific thing, which in my view is kind of terminal, which is that I, I don't think that that division of categories makes any sense. Um, I think that social order is a form of social justice. 
And social justice is a form of social order, at least the ways that different kinds of social justice get articulated are forms of social order. And the reason why we have debates within the left on what social justice looks like, and the reason we have debates between the left and someone like Christian who worries about some of those commitments of the left is because people have different concepts of what social justice and social order looks like. But they're both, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, so I'm not sure that it makes any sense to say, for example, someone who is a staunch Burkean, Burke himself, doesn't have a concept of social justice. I think he has a very rich concept of social justice, which has to do with the ability to maintain one's sense of one's community, one's polity, and one's tradition. That is a sense of social justice. Right. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure that those categories make sense as a conceptual dichotomy. I think that they're profoundly interwoven. What for me is much more interesting is to look at how liberal movements and conservative movements navigate how they define those things, how they define order, how do they define freedom? Left movements have been fighting each other for literally centuries now on concepts of freedom that are antithetical to each other, but they're both liberal in some very basic sense. So this sort of circles back to what I think is the upshot of this conversation for me, which is when you're talking about the differences between conservatism and liberalism, the most important thing is to pay attention to how people are defining it for themselves and how people are defining it for others in order to distinguish themselves, treating it as a rhetorical device rather than treating it as a kind of essential tradition. Well, on that note, I think uh, we'll conclude this episode, a semi-debate, semi-discussion, <laughs> semi-crossfire episode. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can match crossfire in terms of popularity or rhetoric. <laughs> well, yeah. is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I think, I think, well, the rhetoric, it's a good thing, I suppose. Uh, I don't know if I want to be a celebrity either. So uh, I, th I think Ian and I are too friendly to be uh, taking too sharp jabs. That's true. <laughs> that's, that's that's true. Yeah. We don't really fit the, uh, the, the Begala Carlson model very well, but that's just fine. You can find essays by Christian and Ian in the show notes for today's episode. If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out about the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org on Twitter at HDX Academy and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy.